Today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Lisa, who at age 38 suffered two heart attacks. Her life was now on a very different trajectory to the one she had in mind. He knelt down beside me, um, held my hand. I thought I was going to die because you see it on TV, that's what people do. They mm. hold your hands. And I thought, I'm dying, I'm going to die. And mm. he went, I'm really sorry that you've had a heart attack. And I like, looked at him and I went, what? From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Bill Snadden. On the ticker tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. Two years after her heart attacks, now living with heart failure, Lisa would need a major operation to repair a leaky valve. In her conversation with me, Lisa offers a raw and honest account of her recovery and how she's crafted a new life for herself, making sure she manages her condition and not the other way around. Lisa, can you tell me a bit about your life before the heart attack? So, yeah, before the heart attack, I was I was active. Uh, I did martial arts. Uh, I went out quite a lot, actually, most weekends. Um, I was working a full-time job. Uh, I, I enjoyed life. You know, nothing was beyond reach, really. Um... So if, you know, it felt good, I was living a normal life, you know, I would have classified myself as normal. Um, so it didn't, it didn't feel any different. There wasn't a problem. Mm. Um, mm. Enjoyed doing my activities, enjoyed doing sports, enjoyed trying new things. And then, yeah, it all kind of like came to a head, really. You're a karate champion, if I may say so. <laughs> Overestimating. Yeah, so I began um, uh, Goju, and it's called Shotokans. Just really to, as a form of exercise, it was local. It meant after work, I could just go down the road. It wasn't too far. And I didn't really have any enthusiasm for it. I just thought, oh, I'll just go there. But then I watched this guy and I thought, I want to be like that. And then I got my yellow belt and the bug gets you. You do want to progress. You do want to develop. You do want to go further. So I actually graduated and got my first cue. So black belt, in other words. Yeah, and it, it felt good. I mean, it was tough, you know, three hours solid, an hour of getting beaten up. Um, I'm only five foot. <laughs> Everyone's bigger than me. Yeah, a little, little pocket yeah. rocket, Lisa. <laughs> you know, so it was solid, you know, but when you come mm. out and, I mean, I, I couldn't even get off my my my, my second cue belt, you know, I had to, my um, instructor had to take off my, my belts and change it because I was that tired. But mm. the next day I remember looking at my belt and I thought, yeah, I've, I've done it, you know, and it's been mm. worth it. And I was aiming for the next grade in my black belt. Yep, a good feather in your cap. And Lisa, if we jump to early 2011, yeah. you're in your late 30s yeah. and you be, you begin to feel unwell. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so it, it, to be honest, it, it was sudden. I, I have an underlying health condition called lupus, so systemic lupus erythematosus. And initially we thought it was a lupus flare. So went to my rheumatology consultant, had the blood test a week later, nothing was showing, so it wasn't a lupus flare. But I was feverish um, all, all of the time. I generally felt unwell. 
and then I developed pins and needles um, radiating up and down my left arm. Mm. Lisa, for those that might not know, what is lupus, just quickly? It means that my own white cells attack my body and where, in inverted commas, a normal person would get a cut, we generate those white cells to try and heal that. What happens mm-hmm. is that my white cells overpopulate and then they attack. So okay. it, it can be critical. It's, it's life-threatening. So then I was getting these pins and needles, you know, radiating up and down my left arm. We started timing it because it became like every single day, every single night. Um, We were up and down my hospital regularly throughout those seven weeks trying to establish what was going on. Mm, I mm. was given stronger and stronger painkillers, but it became a point that I stopped taking the painkillers because all they were doing was making me sleep, but I was still in pain. Mm. And it's your mum who's uh, with you and supporting you through this period? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I came home, I was living away from home, but I was in that much, like, pain and discomfort that just day-to-day living of trying to cook, you know, for myself, you know, I would would get the shakes all of a sudden. So Mm. I had to stop driving, I'd stopped working because it wasn't safe. Yeah. And one weekend, it all comes to a head. Yeah, so one of my friends was opening a restaurant. Um, some of my mum was like, do you want to go? And I said, yes. She was hugely concerned. And I said, look, all I'll do is I'll take some painkillers. That's all the doctors are giving me. And we go because I just felt I need to carry on living a life, you know, be it, it was a painful life. I need to carry on living. We went, didn't feel anything, didn't notice anything, didn't stay too long, but just, you know, showed a presence, so to support. Mm. The next Saturday was unusual in that I'd actually, I'd physically been sick and it was green stroke black. Um, Mm. And throughout that whole seven weeks, I'd never been physically sick. I was physically unwell, but never. So it freaked um, my mum out. Um, We went to that of ours doctors and said, something is going on and this is not normal. Mm. So he immediately sent us down to A&E. Um, that Saturday, I went through the normal A&E processes. I think I was in there virtually from that morning till about 10 o'clock at night. Um, mm. It was then decided, I got told that at some point I'd need an angiogram. Didn't know what that was. And that I'd, admitted, I'd be admitted to a cardiac ward. Mm. Still didn't know what was going on no inkling it just it doesn't register with you actually you've got heart heart problems i'm still thinking it's something to do with my lupus Hmm. um i think i then knew it was i was hungry realized hadn't eaten all day and my mom said let me go and find out whether you can eat um that that time her and the doctor came back and he said no we're going to take you down to the cardiac unit and you're we're going to do your angiogram tonight um Hmm. still didn't really know what an angiogram was went downstairs um, they explained it through had it done and then on the Sunday one of my rheumatology not even cardiac doctors came hmm. he knelt down beside me um, held my hand I thought I was gonna die because you see on TV that's what people do they hmm. hold your hands um, and I thought I'm dying I'm gonna die and hmm. he went I'm really sorry that you've had a heart attack and I like, looked at him and I went what and he went, oh, I thought somebody would have told you by now. 
And I went, no. And, and my brother was there with me. Um, and I looked at my brother and I was I had that look of, you know, brother to sister, I'm going to kill you for not mm. telling me. Mm. Um, and I looked at his face and I didn't have to say anything. His face told me that nobody had told my family that I'd had mm. a heart attack. And immediately I thought my mum and my stepdad, that means that they don't know either. And literally <laughs> a few... Within minutes, my mum walked through the door and I said to my brother, you know, you can't tell her, I need to find out. And it was horrifying that I had to tell my mum that I'd had a heart attack. What was that conversation like? Oh, tears, you know, um, shock, you know, I'm, I'm in shock. I got it confirmed from my doctors that I had had one. And, you know, when you read and see all the stuff about heart attacks, the pain in the chest, how you're feeling, all the sweats. And I'm like, I didn't feel at all like that. And I didn't have a pounding pain in my chest. Mm. And and you work for the NHS and, and you're across yeah. a lot of this and you didn't have those typical no, symptoms those that, typical that, that, that are out there that, that people think of not. as a heart attack. Absolutely not. Because, you know, I was out. Um, mm. Be it that was a moment, I was out. You know, you know, the pains in the chest, absolutely not. Because had I had pains... I would have alerted someone, you know, to go. Like, I drove. I would live in South East London. My friend's restaurant was in East London. I drove. Mm. And, yeah. you know, it scares me to think that something could have happened, you know, and I had somebody else in the car with me and I could have caused an accident on the road, you know. Mm. Um, it's a scary thought. You know, my mum was in tears and you go through that cycle of, like, the tears, the anger, and, yeah, in the nicest way, we did have it out with the doctors. Mm. And when someone asks you what it feels like to have a heart attack, you'll say, I don't know. Yeah. it's it's, And people look at you like, it's weird. You know, they go, they're expecting you to say, oh, I had pains in my chest and I was all sweaty and I had this severe arm pain. And I'm like, yeah, no. Mm. <laughs> you know, describe what it's like to have a heart attack. And I go, I don't know what it's like mm. to have a heart attack. And you were 38. Yeah. Mm. Um, one month later, you're still recovering, I guess, from that heart attack. You have another heart attack. Yeah, so I was actually at shopping in Croydon. Mm. Uh, I got a phone call to say that my troponin levels had hugely increased and I needed mm. to come in. And I remember going to Nando's because I thought if I've got to go down to A&E, I'm not mm. going to eat for ages. I went to Nando's. Mm. You got to get it. Got to get a chicken wrap or something. <laughs> oh, thank you. Or like, a pitta. You know. <laughs> or what did you go for a wrap or a pitta? No, I actually went. You know the hot wings, chips, oh, yeah. and coleslaw. Banging. Yep. <laughs> yep. Okay. All right. Well, okay. So, so you're at Nando's and and you've you've filled up your boots. Yeah, I got a phone call from my mum because obviously my hospital expected me to come down immediately to go to the hospital. Are mm. like looking for you, and I went, yeah, I know. And she went, well, where are you? And I said, I'm mm. in Nando's, I'm eating. Mm. Not very impressed parent. No. Um, but I still remember collecting my Nando's and then I went down to my mum's. We always have a hospital bag ready. Sure. You know, it's one of those things. They mm. picked up the hospital bag and we went down. Um, got told I ne needed another angiogram to see what was going on. And I wasn't worried. You know, my first angiogram, it went well. You know, you would have thought that your first one, you're nervous. Mm. You know, you feel things. Um my second one, it went it went wrong. There's no other word for it. So I had a spiral dissection. Mm. I remember bits of the night. I do remember telling that I'm in pain. I'm in pain. Mm. 
What does the spiral a dissection mean for those out there that might not know? So basically, when they're going in with with the probe to like to try and look at what's happening, it mm. pierces through your artery a number of, of times, and mm. it looks like it's a spiral. So it goes through a number of holes, um, and it pierces it. Mm-hmm. So it's you know it's no comfort to tell me oh it's one in a hundred thousand. Not interested. Yeah. Um, I was telling you that something that I was in pain and the person still carried on when they should have actually stopped. Hmm. So I'm, my mum said I'm very lucky and she's really grateful that I didn't remember much after that night. She said I came out into the recovery room. I was still complaining of being in a lot of pain and my sash dropped heavily. I was taken back into the room and then like on the scan, hmm. they saw that I'd had a spiral dissection so because of that, um, my heart went into distress and mm-hmm. whilst I was under, because they then sedated me to try and get me to relax, I had what's what they deem as now a second major heart attack. Okay. So again, when people ask and, they, and I say I have two heart, I've had two heart attacks, two different mm. circumstances, mm. but I don't know what it feels like to have a heart attack. Jumping back to that moment in the supermarket where you get a call from uh, someone at the hospital saying that your troponin levels are a measure that suggests that there's there's some trouble with the heart. How did how did they know that that, that was happening? Um, because you 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 have a balance, so it's like you have say how say naught to hundred is normal as an mm. example. Um, hundred over is not normal. I was about a mm. thousand. So you get it done mm-hmm. by blood test. Okay. Okay. Um, and then that showed that they they had raised, so something okay. was going on. And then you carry on with your life after that second heart attack um, for a couple of years until yeah. 2013 when uh, you need an operation. Yeah, so I was, you're aware of your body. So, you know, one of the classic symptoms, breathlessness, not being able to walk flat for 200 yards, not being able to sleep flat, you know, not being your usual self. So one of my bits was, you know, I was back exercising after my my major, you know, I'm what I'm called, I call myself, you know, the good patient. I mm. do everything that's needed to get my, my life back on track. Mm. And then suddenly I noticed I was tired all the time. Um, mm. I wasn't sleeping very well. I was getting, you know, climbing stairs became back to being, you know, such a task, something that you yep. just didn't look forward to. Yeah, something that was so easy, a yeah. pre-heart attack that yeah. you would you would get around town, you 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 would you would go up and down stairs. Yeah, you'd go even to the gym. after my major heart attack, you know, I was back in cardiac rehab. I finished cardiac rehab in good stead. I was back at the gym. You know, mm. I was back working full time, um, yep. and it just became a task. You know, I stopped going out because I'm too tired. I used to work during the week, sleep mm. the whole weekend, and then start work again. So it was, I had just enough energy to work. Mm. but didn't have enough energy to do anything else. So that was my life. So Mm. we knew that something was up. As a charity, the British Heart Foundation depends on the generosity of donors to continue carrying out our life-saving research. Thank you to all those who already give. It's truly appreciated. If you too would like to donate, you can do so by going to bhf.org.uk slash donate. And now, back to the conversation. 
After the second heart attack, you were diagnosed with heart failure. Yeah, so it was told that I had heart failure, that I would be on medication for the rest of my life. Mm. For me, that that wasn't really an issue. And with lupus, I was going to be on medication for the rest of my life. It was just like, oh, here's a few more tablets. Mm. You know, yep. not really a major biggie. Um, I know for some people, you know, that's a big deal for them. You know, you go from not being on anything mm. to eight tablets. Mm. Let us jump to 2013 when you need an operation to fix a leaky valve. Yeah. So a big deal. So I was actually um, not a great experience actually being told that you need an operation. So I was on a cardiac ward, you know, hooked up, watching my heart, etc. And again, some things that you never forget. I remember the doctors coming, they stood at the end of my bed and, you know, I'm one of those patients, I'm curious for doctors because of I have I've had lupus and the number of surgeries that I've had. It's always like they bring a team. Mm. And that A was inappropriate at the time. And then he stood at the end of the bed and said, you know, you're going to need open heart surgery. And I remember crying and he went, oh, don't worry about it. We do this every day. And I, I literally shouted at him and blessed the poor nurse who came because then your heart rate bowls out. But you don't do this to me every day. Mm. How would you have preferred him to deliver that news? It's about bedside manner. I mean, number one, you know, I'm I'm not on parade for people. You know, this situation, you know, bedside manner, come sit down next to me and talk to me about something. Mm. It doesn't make the pain of it any easier. It doesn't take away what needs to happen. Mm. But it's about, you know, um, a person, not just a patient. Yeah. And that's how I think, you know, many doctors, clinicians, nurses, you know, the medical workforce sometimes need to remember that behind of what we are actually diagnosed with, we're people, we've got feelings and we've got emotions. Mm. And, you know, again, he did that with me by myself. I've got a family, sit down with us. Mm. And thankfully, my rheumatology consultant had come and I said to him, I, I can't do this again by myself. You know, I had to tell my parents the first time round that I'd had a heart attack. I said, I'm not doing this by myself. Mm. And he actually got one of the doctors to come back, a different doctor, because I was like, I don't want him to come back, mm. um, to actually come and sit with me and talk it through with my family. Mm. You know, and that's what should have happened the first time. And tell me about the operation and then waking up afterwards. Because I was still so very young, they wanted to do a repair to my valve, not a metal valve replacement. Mm. They knew that one of, you know, my arteries were weak, so I didn't know, I knew that I'd need to have a bypass. I didn't know whether I'd have one bypass, two, two bypasses, whether I'd have a repair, whether I'd have a metal valve. Mm. I'm a very control freak. Mm. <laughs> I like to know what's going on. Yeah. So. And it's a big thing. It's a big thing, a heart operation. And at, Absolutely. You know, you're, you're given, you know, you don't just go into it. Obviously, you have sessions with people. Mm. You you go to like lectures. Um, yeah. I, I, I wasn't, I couldn't face these lectures. I just didn't want to know. Mm. Lisa, have you been told at this stage what caused the first two heart attacks? My, my lupus un underlyingly went for an area which was very, very weak. Okay. Lupus in women is it's it's popular but heart issues in females with lupus is at, is high mm. 
you know, at no point had I ever diagnosed lupus when I was 16, mm. had I ever seen a cardiologist, had I ever, you know, come into contact, did I ever receive dietary advice? No one can say that it wouldn't have stopped it, but perhaps I could have made it quite, you know, not severe, mm. change my diet. You know, when I reflected back as to all the foods that I ate, mm. nobody told me to perhaps have, you know, shellfish as a one-off or, you know, on that special occasion, mm. um, dairy products, all the things about changing your diet. And it's not something that would have been foreign to me because I had to do that when I had lupus, you know, mm. I had to do that when I had kidney problems. So you do the best for yourself, but you need to be given that tools and advice to do that. Sure. And no one ever told me anything. Mm. So, you know, it's strange. My surgery, I'm a difficult patient to wake up. So be it that I'm small, I've woken up from an anaesthetic. So I'm always ploughed to make sure that I don't wake up. Mm. So I didn't wake up, you know, I came out of it, but I wasn't sort of coherent for a good like two, three days. Mm. And then I came round and then you see yourself mm. and it's it's scary. You know, I remember seeing things, as I quote, sticking out of me. Mm. Um, no idea what they were. Mm. Not being able to, you know, nothing can prepare you as to how immobile you are post-surgery and how slowly you have to take things, you know. Um, just going to, like, the bathroom, mm. as an example, you know, that took minutes. Yep. You know, there's nothing, there was nothing about, oh, wait until, oh, got to go, got to go. Yeah. Um, how did your body How did your body feel? Stiff, mm. very immobile. Mm. You know, everything was, was, was difficult. You know, you're, obviously, they've cracked open my chest. Mm. Um, the, that it felt like it didn't have any feeling whatsoever mm. in my chest. I didn't see my scar on my arm, but I looked at it, mm. you know, saw this huge patch and thought, oh, my God, is it really that big? Yep. You know, um, it was massive. Mm. And they took a vein from your arm? Yeah. So they, I had the choice of leg or arm, mm. and I remember going through cardiac rehab. I think I've been there, but, you know, at that time, by the time I'd done that, about three times, and I remember people saying that they had it from the leg and it was so painful mm -hmm. because your leg is not something that you can rest. Yep. So I thought, right, I'm having it from my arm because at least I can, you know, rest my arm and not use it. Mm. And the surgeon went, don't know whether I'll be able to take it from your arm because you're so tiny. It may not serve purpose, but, you know, we'd see. And again, you know, you're going into surgery, don't know whether it's going to be from my arm, from my leg, whether they're going to have one from my arm, one from my leg. Mm. You know, really, really scary. Um, it was taken from my left arm because yep. I'm right-handed, so obviously they try and not take it from the stronger arm. Mm. Yeah, so I, I I had, you know, when I was come round, it was explained that I'd ha I had had a cabbage, so coronary artery bypass growth, mm -hmm. and in fact they had repaired the valve and it wasn't a metal. What does that mean it, for, for um, people who know nothing about heart disease, describe how the vein is taken and, and where it's put and the purpose of it's going to a new location. So it's obviously it's taken from your left it's taken from your left arm mm. um or leg. So any of the legs which mm. tends to have the bigger veins, so it's better. Mm. Um but mine taken from my left and it's placed um into the heart to try and help with the flow. Mm -hmm. Like opening up a new road to, to free to yeah, free up traffic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So you've got you've got a weak you've got a weak vein, and they need to. If you don't have that, then it can clog. It can cause mm -hmm. 
more heart issues. It can cause, you know, a heart attack. Mm -hmm. So it's just trying to give you, I kind of like call it another breath of life. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a new lane on a freeway or a, a new overpass. Yeah, on that high road, yeah. Yep. So you on a motorway, you, you, you've got two lanes. One is a bit closed and you need, you need help trying mm. to open it up. And Lisa, what was it like when the bandages were taken off? Oh, yes, yeah, so I remember I, like, I, I, didn't, I never saw my scars when I was in hospital. Um, I came home and we you'll get, um, had a district nurse uh, who comes and, you know, looks after you. And that my bandages came off and it was the first time that I'd seen them. And obviously you've got to remember that they're raw. So this is about two weeks after surgery. Mm. And I cried, you know, um, it's for, I think for anybody, particularly females, there was this massive thing down the middle of my chest that was red, that, you know, it was, it was awful for me. Mm. And then the one came off on my arm. And I don't think anything can prepare you. You know, you know I work in the NHS, I see scars, I see stitches all of the time. Mm. You know, by the time that, that, by the time I had my surgery, I'd had you know, major surgery, um, replacing my jaw. And I'd had staples in my head. Mm. And that wasn't emo as, as emotional as seeing something that's, I think, so personal. Mm. Um, and, I th and I think that's the crux point. Mm. And I asked her to cover them up. And again, you know, it's it was nice to have somebody who was supportive because what she said is that if you're still like this, you're going to need to talk to somebody because these bandages have to come off at some point. Mm. So I think she made another appointment in two weeks' time. And what we did at home was, like, each day just take a little bit of it off, mm. you know, a little bit of more of it off, mm. a little bit more of it off, mm. a little bit more of it off. So they have to, you know, you know that they have to come off because they need to get air, and the more the air they get to and the better that they heal. Mm. But that kind of helped a little bit. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, still, like, not great things to have. And, you know, I I hated them. There isn't any other word. And I try to think about softer words, mm. but there isn't. I hated them. You know, they were, for me, reminders about what had happened mm. and I didn't want to see it. Yeah. But in time, your relationship with your scars did change. Yeah, because I had an amazing heart failure nurse and I have to put her in this because she was actually really pivotal to me learning to accept my scars mm. yeah and it got to the stage you know you don't have to like them but you're gonna have to accept that they are part of you and that they are always going to be there so you can't continually have a hate relationship because you're having a hate relationship with your body and when you hear that I was like oh she doesn't know what she's talking about you know they don't have them they don't know what it's like mm. but I did learn to accept them and I also set myself like a goal of that day that I accepted them for what they are and that they were a part of me that I would do a photo shoot exposing my scars mm. and I remember doing that and I, I can't tell you what was that turning point like absolutely not but I got that turning point and you know I now you know grace them as like they're my battle wounds I'm often called you know the little soldier mm. because I've gone through the wars 
I've got the scars to prove it, mm. but I've come out the other end. Um, and I did my photo shoot, and I think I've I've come across some amazing people in my life because she was a fantastic photographer mm. who made me feel comfortable, you know. And we did some really not to say it, some expose, mm. you know, photographs because, but I wanted for people and for myself to see my scars mm. and. You know those photos are amazing, mm. um, and they've been used mm. um, in other in, in other elements. And I'm proud of them, mm. and I'm also now proud of my scars. Mm. But it's not easy. No, I've seen the pics; they're remarkable photographs. Thank you're, you. You're embracing your scars and, and owning your body, and the photos uh, show your spirit coming through. Thank they really you. do. Um, you also had to, I guess, manage your scars when you went to Notting Hill Festival a little while afterwards. Can you tell me about that? Yes, yeah, so I had my surgery in July 2013. Mm. Um, my family come from Trinidad, so, you know, carnival has always been a big part mm. um, of my life. It's part of my culture, it's part of my history. And obviously not knowing, you know, that I was going to have surgery, I had secured my costume, I paid for it, and I was absolutely determined to go to Notting Hill Carnival. Mm. And I remember going to collect my costume, and I cried because my scar was so visible. I mean, for those who go Notting Hill, um, us girls, we don't tend to wear very much. Mm. Um, but there was a visible sight, and I thought, I can't do this. And again, you know, somebody so important in my life at that time you know she adjusted my costume so that my scar wasn't visible and that I could you know go and I think part of it is that I hadn't told many people what had happened mm. I had told and I didn't want to go to something go oh, what's that and have to talk it through it was still too raw it was a you know a month six weeks later mm. and I hadn't gotten used to that fact mm. and you know six weeks later was I able to walk the whole of the route? Absolutely not. I spent most of that time on the truck, but it was the fact that I was there. I mm. mean, that's a proud moment for me. I, I have never missed Notting Hill since I was eight. Mm. I've gone with, you know, my shoulder in a sling, coming out of hospitals the night before, mm. um, but I didn't want to miss it, yeah. you know, and I got there. And again, you know, um, the band's leader, mm. he was somebody who we had to tell. He's somebody mm. that... I've known for a very long time and yeah. I said to him, you know, I don't want every, you know, everybody to know. And we kept it there, but it was, it was so nice to be there. The atmosphere, just to yeah. be there was enough. Lisa, you mentioned the heart failure nurse. Yeah. She also suggested to you that you might want to create a bucket list. <laughs> yeah, my bucket list. So my heart failure nurse, amazing. You know, she's Irish. Um, and to be honest, was the right type of person for me. So has huge empathy but also very a very strong person as well um and the right type of person for me to challenge me and to go do you mm. know what you you can feel sorry for yourself and you are allowed to feel sorry for yourself but pick up and dust off so i remember going to her and i was having a i feel sorry for myself moment and she let me have that and she went you need to, you know, why don't you create a bucket list? And I stormed back out like a bucket list is only for the dying. And she went, no, the bucket list is for the living. And I still didn't get that, you know. Mm. And I just thought again, you know, bucket list only for the dying. You know, you hear that, you know, what to do before 40 and what to do before 50. And, you know, these are the things I want to do before I die. But mm. I remember going home 
and thinking about it and thought, okay, you know, what are the things that I would like to do that I've gone, oh, yeah, I'd like to do this or I'd I'd like to go here, but I've never actually done. Mm. And I started creating one and it it immediately gives you that that lift that something mm. something to look forward to of something to work towards and even mm. if you're going to go if i need to do this i need to get a bit fitter or i've got to do this or you know maybe if i want to have that really good meal then i've got to be good for the next three months and then i can really like pig out stuff my face mm. really enjoy it and i started creating a bucket list and mm. I've, I've kept that going and it's yeah, you know. What have you done? What, what what have you done on it? Right, so my first thing was I've never been to a Mexican restaurant. I don't know mm-hmm. that's the people are like, you've never been to a Mexican restaurant? No, I'd never been to a Mexican, Mexican restaurant. So I went to a Mexican restaurant. Um, amazing. What did you have? Uh, what did you eat? I think everything possible that you could have on the menu. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It yeah. was like, right, I'm here. Yeah. I'm really going to yeah. en- enjoy myself. So We'll have 17 quesadillas, <laughs> yeah. 14 enchiladas. Yeah. We'll have the nachos. You know, you yep, just, keep them coming. Yeah, just a little bit of everything, you know. Our uh, British Heart Foundation dietitian is going to kill me. <laughs> but, again, it's like I don't think, you know, what we've got to remember is that we don't do this every single month, you know. Mm. I wouldn't go to that level... No, yeah, I definitely wouldn't go to that level every mm. single month. But mm. you do it as a treat and therefore, you know, you enjoy it more, you know. Yep. so and, and and some of the other things on your bucket list, run, run me through them. Okay, so um, I swam with dolphins. Um, I'd actually gone to Malta and my family had surprised me, so I didn't even know. And um, they had booked for me to swim with dolphins. And uh, they're just, I mean, their breast smells, mm. I'm not going to lie. But um, mm. they're amazing creatures, and it was such a wonderful experience. Mm. Um, mm. Definitely would do that again. I was supposed to have my third and final tattoo. I still kept that on my bucket list. So I had mm. two tattoos at the time, and I got a third tattoo. And I think, for me, I've now got nine, but they all mean something to me personally. Yep. Um, well, you've you've exceeded expectations there. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think my KPIs should actually hear that one. But, you know, I had my photo shoot of who I am, you know, mm. and that was a really pivotal step in life for me. Um, mm. I went to the IMAX cinema in Waterloo, you know, things oh, which yeah. are so close to me, but I'd never yeah. been. And I made yeah. sure I went and saw like, a, oh, what movie did I see? I think it was one of the Jurassics, you know, so there was oh, a yeah. big screen. It was really important to go and mm. see it on the big screen. I'd always want to jump out of a plane and obviously yep. heart failure. As you do. Yeah, as you, <laughs> as you do. With a parachute, yeah. I hope. Yeah, so. with a parachute. You know, I probably like jump yeah. out of the plane with a parachute. But yeah. obviously heart failure stopped that, you know, heart attack stopped that. Um, mm. But again, like looking at another thing, my heart failure, that's was stop looking at what you can't do and look at what you can do. So yeah. I went indoor skydiving. Oh, oh, yeah. And I would recommend that. Amazing. Absolutely. Mm. You know, it's not jumping out of a plane, but that it really feels like you are in the air. Mm. You've got all the sound around you. Yeah. Absolutely. Feel like you're flying. Uh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Mm. Um, oh, well, I went to, I'd always want to go to a Christmas market abroad. Um, oh, yeah. We went to Germany to a Christmas mm. market. You know, the whole atmosphere is somewhere different. What have mm. I done? I went, I'd always want to go to a weekend a party abroad because you've got to remember mm. that during those times of having a heart attack or going up to heart surgery, 
you know, energy levels minimum. Um, mm. You know, you just got just about much energy to live, really. So I was like, yeah. right, I want to go to a party weekend, but it's got to be abroad. Um, and mm. I went to Ibiza and it's like eight parties in five days. And really living, yeah. really living, Lisa. So, and my friends helped me celebrate that as well. So, mm. and it, that was like really nice, you know. Yeah. Um, and we'll say we'll say that it was all in moderation. Oh, oh gosh, yeah, all in moderation. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yes. it has and, to be moderation and, to make that amount. <laughs> and all signed off, all signed off by your specialists and doctors. I mean, absolutely. You know, like it's one of the things that you know it's difficult. So, you know, you go on holiday. I've got to be fit. Um, as part of my insurance, you've got to get special insurance that often costs, mm. you know, more insurance because I need to make sure that I'm covered at all angles. I need to make sure and have a sign off that my, you know, from my doctors that I'm fit and I'm well mm. enough to go, you know. And mm. that feels like sometimes people go, oh, you're looking for your tea holiday. And I'm like, until I get that sign off right now, no. You know, mm. um, I can book a holiday away, you know, a year mm. in advance. And, mm. and you want to get excited, but I don't because I think if something happens, that's going to go down the pan, you sure. know. So it is things like I've booked, hopefully, to go to Hania in Greece in September. Um, mm -hmm. I've got my sign-off from my consultant. It doesn't mm -hmm. seem far away, but I'm like, yeah, it feels good, don't get me wrong, mm. that I've been signed off that I'm well enough to travel. Yep. But there's a lot that can happen between now and September. Sure. So I'm holding that little bit of excitement. Don't get me wrong. Like you have, yeah. to, you have to be a little bit excited, but I'm mm. not going to be jumping up and down yet. And as we round the, the the finishing bend here, Lisa, you've been told that you will need another operation at some point in the near future. Absolutely. So at some point, you know, I've done remarkably well. So in January 2014, I was told that my valve was severely leaking. So you can have your valve leaking a little bit and a lot of people mm. can live with their valves leaking a little bit and they don't even know. You mm. can have it moderate and you can have it severe. Um, and you're on some medications some trial yeah. drugs for this. So in January 2014, I was told I was going to need the surgery again because the valve was leaking severely. It was only six months previously that I'd had the surgery. Um, and I don't think people should underestimate. It's not just about the physical. You have to be mentally ready for that. And I mm. wasn't mentally ready for that. You know, I was barely back to a normal form of life. Mm. And I said, no, I didn't want the surgery again. And I didn't know what they could do. And I wasn't interested. I just remember telling my doctor, you have to find something because I'm not having it. And there was a trial drug out there. Um, and first of all, I wasn't able to get on the drug because I wasn't, I didn't fit the criteria. But mm. my consultant fought hard and said, this is somebody who will be suitable for this. Mm. You know, she would do what's needed. Um, she mm. will abide by and follow all the protocols, all the guidelines. We need to trial her on it. And I'm, I've managed to delay my surgery for what coming up to nine years now. You know, hopefully mm -hmm. next year it'll be 10. Yep, and it, but you know it's on the horizon at some point. Yeah, it's going to be on the horizon. And mm -hmm. we're preparing for that, you know, so it's going to be 2024 mm. stroke 2025. Yep, a metal a metal valve. Yeah, you know, yep. and again, not to be underestimated, people are like, oh, but you've gone round through it the first time round. I want to just wipe that out of people's mouth, if I was to be honest, because it doesn't matter that you've yep. been through it. This is different, and I think... 
even if you cut your finger and you get stitches, you know, pain, mm. you know, it's different. Your whole experience is different. The recovery. If anyone, uh, if anyone says that to you, Lisa, you can just mention that you've got a black belt in karate. <laughs> just, just, just mention Slightly, it. Slightly, yeah. Don't, don't, don't follow through <laughs> yeah, yeah. on any threats. It's such a weird statement, you know, for people to make. And, you know, I would never underestimate what any type, you know, if I was, I know all the pre-investigations that I'm going to have to go through again, you know, mm. and I I don't think you underestimate any of those, you know, they're not nice things to go through. Um, no. The recovery is going to be all over again. I know about the metal valve and the tick, 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 tick. And, you know, I was told, oh, you know, somebody said, oh, you don't really hear it. And then I spoke to somebody who actually has the metal valve. And what he said was that you do hear it, but mm. it just becomes a part of you, you know, yeah. and that's the truth element. You know, there's no point again in people saying you don't hear it. You do hear it. Just be honest. You do hear it. You, we, we, the first podcast we did here with Alex, he put his uh, mic up to his chest and, and you could hear it quite audibly. Yeah. Um, so it, it is there. L- Lisa, um, what message might you have for others out there who might be struggling and, and are in a confused or, or, or low spot, perhaps they've had heart attacks or been diagnosed with heart failure or other conditions, what, what would you say to them? I'd say, number one, you're not alone. So reach out, talk to somebody, so communicate. Uh, I had a counsellor and I'll, if you're feeling really low, get somebody because it felt great to have a counsellor because I felt I could unburden everything on them it's not my family, so they're not going to worry and not going to worry about upsetting them. And it felt good to offload. And I remember saying to her, I don't want you to say anything. I just need to talk. And I just talked and I felt great for it. So don't feel that you're alone. Like reach out. Please go to the British Heart Foundation website. There's so much information on there. There is a whole lot of us out there who can, you know, from a pa- who can give us that patient perspective and get support. There's support mm. groups. You know, different mm. people, different things. Not everyone likes a support group, but try it. And I think my last message is don't give up on life. You know, you will have to make changes. Don't let anybody else tell you any different. You will have to make changes. You will have to make adaptations. But you can live a life and get a bucket list. It's amazing. <laughs> a bucket list for the living. Yeah, bucket list for the living. Mm. And can I just say, like, my last thing is um, I did uh, the photo shoot with you and mm. we found that bench in oh, yeah. Norwood Park mm. and the statement it said was, we have hope and yep. remember that we do, that we are people first, not patients, and we have hope. Mm. Lisa, having um, spoken with you now, I have hope. Um, <laughs> I, ha- I have renewed hope. Um, thank you very much thank for, for share- sharing your story with me and, and thanks for all you do for the British Heart Foundation. Um, we greatly appreciate it. And thank you guys for, A, giving me the opportunity and to everyone at the British Heart Foundation for all the work that you do. Lisa is one of the 900,000 people in the UK living with heart failure. Put simply, heart failure means your heart isn't pumping blood around your body as well as it should. It doesn't mean your heart has stopped working, however, you will likely need support to help it work better. Severe forms of heart failure, though, might mean people have just months to live after their diagnosis. Our research has created treatments to give people with heart failure longer and healthier lives. 
but there's currently no cure. With your help, our medical researchers are working to change that. If you've got any questions or concerns about your heart or circulatory health and would like to speak to a cardiac nurse on the BHF's Heart Helpline, go to our website at bhf.org.uk slash heart helpline and you'll find all of the contact options there. You'll also find useful information on our vital research in the episode notes and on our website bhf.org.uk. And if you've got your own heart story or have any thoughts on this episode, do get in touch with us by email at theTickerTapes at bhf.org.uk. See you next time on the Ticker Tapes.